0: AGO 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Janice Nimura, author of Daughters of the Samurai, A Journey from East to West and Back, published by W.W. Norton and Company in 2015. Janice, thank you so much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: You published this book about the women of the Iwakota mission. And, and before we talk more specifically about that, I was, was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how you got into the project.
1: Well, I live in New York, but in college, I met a boy who had been born in Japan. After we got married, we moved to Japan for a few years. And when we came back to New York City, this is in the mid-90s, I got some very good advice from a wise woman who popped up at the right moment and said, don't go to graduate school in writing. Go to graduate school in what you want to write about. And since the most interesting story in my life at that point had to do with Japan, I went to Colombia and did a master's in East Asian Studies, where I got fascinated with the Meiji era and all of the incredible cross-cultural turbulence that was part of that moment. And sort of read everything I could tried to find forgotten stories of that moment of people from America going to Japan, of people from Japan coming here. And then I stumbled upon this story, which turned out to be a perfect and unusual lens through which to look at Meiji. I found a memoir called A Japanese Interior by a woman named Alice Mabel Bacon, who was a Connecticut school teacher who had spent time alone in Japan in the late 1880s teaching, which was weird enough. Most single women teachers didn't take themselves to Japan in the 1880s. But what she said in her book was even stranger, which was that while she was in Tokyo, she had lived not with other foreigners, but with Japanese friends whom she had known long and intimately in America, which made absolutely no sense at all, because I couldn't imagine how she could have made female Japanese friends in America in the 1870s. And so I sort of followed where Alice Bacon led and discovered that she had been the foster sister of Stematsu Yamakawa, who is the oldest of the three girls that I ended up writing about, that her family had fostered this Japanese girl, age 11, starting in 1872 for a decade. And that was the portal into this story. And it resonated in so many ways, oddly, with my own story as a white girl from New York who hadn't any idea about Japan until she suddenly found herself living there with her new Japanese family. I lived with my in-laws for the first year of marriage and all of the cross-cultural problems and joys that you encounter when you do a deep dive into a foreign place and try to make it home. So for all those reasons, my own fascination with the history and then the resonance with my own story, it was a fascinating story. It would not leave me alone.
0: (laughs) And so you mentioned you came across Yamakawa Stematsu, one of these women who comes to the United States on the Iwakura mission. And when we talk about the Meiji period, the Iwakura mission is so central to Japan's modernization and and all of this westernization during the Meiji period. But so often we don't hear about this other side of the story, which is these women who were a part of that mission.
1: Yeah. I mean, the three girls, there were five girls originally who left with the Iwakura mission in 1871. They were To an alarming extent in hindsight, a complete afterthought. No one really had a plan for them. The idea was that Kuroda, who would eventually become prime minister, but at that point was an advisor to the young emperor, had already visited America and, while in America, had been struck by the difference between American women and Japanese women, in that American women, at a certain socioeconomic level, they studied, they had read a lot. They often had opinions, and even more startlingly, they voiced their opinions, sometimes to their men, and their men often listened to them. So he started to form this idea that American success, Western success, this kind of commercial industrial success that Japan at this point was desperate to catch up to, had something to do with this support that American men got from their women. So with that in mind, maybe if Japanese women received the same kind of education that some American women seem to be receiving, they could perform the same kind of supporting role for their enlightened men. So he said, you know, let's find some girls and put them with the mission, drop them off in America, leave them there for a decade and, you know, let them soak up all of that Americanness after which they'll just come home and help spawn a new generation of enlightened men. There was really no more careful thought than that, which is astonishing when you think about the fact that five families risked a daughter and sent them off with this group. By the time they were ready to come back 10 years later, and this is you know a, a central theme of the book, the, the Japanese government really did not have a plan what they were to do. And the fact that they that we're still talking about them today is a real tribute to these young women and, and the kind of intelligence and grit they had to feel like this mission was one they had to fulfill.
0: And I was recalling this speech by Ito Hidobumi, when he arrives in San Francisco on the Iwakura mission, he, he's talking about, All of the great advances Japan's made, and he he points to all this tangible stuff, of course. But then he also says, look how enlightened our women are becoming. (laughs) Women's education at this time was really seen as a barometer of a nation's civilization. So if the women were more educated, clearly the country was more advanced. And I think it was even in the emperor's announcement of the Iwakura mission, he actually identifies one of the necessities of being educating our women. So we've allowed some of our wives and daughters to go along on this mission so that they can learn about the conditions in the West and then come back and educate our women back in Japan. But as you said, it's entirely for this idea of supporting the men, not for the sake of educating women for their own right.
1: Right. It was very much the good wife, wise mother. That phrase resonated throughout women's education in Meiji and in Victorian, in the Victorian West. I mean, it's not like American and European women were being educated to achieve more than that. That line of the emperors about, yes, we're letting the wives and daughters of our men go and get educated. That was a little bit of of deft PR because, of course, there were no wives going over. There were just these little girls who really had no say. (laughs) Anybody who was an adult would have balked at going over to this alien place.
0: You're absolutely right. It's remarkable when you think about, in some case, I think uh, Tsuda Umeko was six. Yamakawa stayed was eleven incredibly young women, and then you said they go over for an entire decade. I mean, that's just a remarkable thing.
1: Right, outrageous on many levels. I, you know, I always say to be interested in this particular story, you don't really have to have any interest in Japan. You just have to know a six-year-old and <laughs> and think about how extraordinary that journey would have felt for a tiny little thing.
0: I gotta imagine, you know, especially like Ume at six years old. What choice did she have? It, you know, Did she actually make this choice to go? Or you know, what was that process? Did somebody just tell her, hey, tomorrow you're going to get on this boat and you're not going to see your family for a decade?
1: Basically. I mean, it seems shocking. But then when you think about the circumstances and the things that each of these five families had in common, it starts to make a little bit more sense. So in 1868, you had the Boshin War, the end of the Tokugawa shogunate. And You know, you had winners and losers, and the families of the five girls who went with the Iwakura mission had all chosen the wrong side. They had all been deeply loyal to the Tokugawa side. And so in defeat, they really found themselves in trouble, you know, especially Stematsu's family up in Aizu. That had been, you know, the last holdout, the last battle. I mean, romances have been written. (laughs) And her whole clan went into exile and, and were essentially finding it hard to find enough to eat. So for these families, first of all, one less mouth to feed wasn't such a bad thing. Second of all, girls, they all, ha- they all had sons and risking a girl wasn't such a big deal, unfortunately, in the, in the misogynist nature of the culture. And thirdly, the families of Stematsu and Shige and Ume, coincidentally, all had some experience with the fact that Western ideas and English were likely to be really important in the future. Ume's father had been an English translator for the Shogun. Stematsu's two older brothers were already in America studying to make their contribution to Meiji. And Shige had a brother and father who had also traveled in Europe earlier on an embassy. So all of these families could see the writing on the wall and knew that learning in America might come to be a very prestigious thing to have done. And if they could get a daughter off their own payroll, so to speak, and have her come back, lo and behold, in 10 years, with this prestigious set of skills, it might really help their family's fortunes. So no, the girls did not have any say in whether they were going or not. But in fact, the lives that they had in America for those 10 years were much easier in many ways than they would have been had they stayed with their families.
0: Yeah, I wasn't aware that the the families were all on the losing side of the Bushin War, but that's a great point. About in many cases, in in rural Japan in particular, in the 70s and 80s, if you were a second or a third child, especially if you were a daughter and you know of an impoverished family, they would often sell you off to a brothel, even if necessary. And so it does make sense that, you know, you would have these women who were being sent away on the mission. What was the connection that the families had to the mission, though? Did the government send out, you know, an announcement, hey, give us your daughters to send away? Or, or how exactly did they end up on the yeah, mission? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I wish I had, you know, <laughs> the hear ye, hear ye document that got posted around. <laughs> Unfortunately not. I do know that when the, however, the mechanism for putting the word out happened. It had to happen twice, because the first time the word went out, no one stepped forward. It was too much to ask. Why would you send away a daughter when she was still useful around the house, only to get her back sort of too late to marry in who knows what shape? <laughs> you know, wh- Why would you do that? So no, I don't know. Uh, I do know, though, that the, when the call went out, it went out to families of the samurai class. These were families whose daughters were likely to have already been taught hiragana to you know to be lettered at some level and likely to be able to learn there was some awareness that you had to you couldn't just pick a pluck a peasant out and drop them on another planet and expect it to work
0: So what are their experiences like when they're in America? You mentioned Yamakawa ends up in this foster home. So I imagine each of the girls found their way into foster homes. And it started with five, but then it became three later.
1: Right. So they arrive in Washington, D.C. in the winter of 1872. And two of the five girls, the two oldest of the five girls, they're around 14. It's immediately clear that they are not going to be cut out to fulfill this crazy mission that they've been launched upon. They are, you know, in, in Japanese cultural terms in, in the 1870s, they're almost of marriageable age. They're sort of too old to be flexible enough to do this deep dive and really assimilate a new culture. And they're very homesick. One of them isn't well, she has some eye trouble. And so, having finally reached Washington, D.C., they are immediately turned around and sent back to Japan where they leave this story. The other three, it also immediately becomes clear, if they remain together, the mission will not be completed because they won't leave their language behind. They will only stick to each other. So they're separated to facilitate their assimilation. And two of them are sent north to New Haven, Connecticut. The youngest, Umetsuda remains in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. And all three of the families that adopt them, this is where luck sort of comes into the story a bit, all three of these families that take in a Japanese girl in 1872, I mean, think about that, are incredibly progressive-minded, open-minded, and sure that a girl is capable of greatness in a way, because all of all these families raise these three Japanese girls to be really mindful that they are ambassadors. It is more the families, these American families doing, that these girls remain kind of aware of who they are supposed to be, much more so, I think, than the Japanese government who funds them but doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to them during the decade that they're here.
0: And so who are those families?
1: So in New Haven, the first family is the family of Leonard Bacon, father of Alice Bacon, that I mentioned, the memoirist. Leonard Bacon was the minister whose pulpit was the center church in the middle of New Haven, one of the most powerful congregationalist pulpits in New England. He had, I think, 14 children. He was, you know, the the sort of the vision of the biblical patriarch and a very forward-thinking and influential voice in New England. He originally took two of the girls, Stematsu Yamakawa and Shige Nagai, and then they were further separated and Shige went and lived with the family of another Congregationalist minister in New Haven. Those two girls, the two older ones, who on arrival were 11 and 10, sort of were near each other throughout this decade that they spent in America and always in touch. The littlest one, Ume, stayed in Georgetown with a family by the name of Landman, and she was their only child and they were a childless couple who had always wanted a child and so they called her their their sunbeam from the land of the rising sun. And she was really their their pet and as she was the youngest, she was the one who assimilated the most profoundly because she lost all of her Japanese by the end of her decade with this doting couple in Washington. She was essentially a middle-class American Protestant girl in a Japanese package. She no longer spoke Japanese at all.
0: You mentioned there was also a male student there. And this reminded me, in the 1880s, we get all of these Japanese students being sent overseas to the US, to England, mainly to, to study technical skills, engineering and practical skills, and bring them back to Japan so that they can advance Japanese industry. So what are the kind of things that these women are learning while they're in the United States?
1: Right, exactly. I mean, one of those male students was Kenjiro Yamakawa, who was Stamatsu's older brother. Part of the reason she was in New Haven was because he was there and it was easy for him to look out for the little sister. And you're right. So he was there to learn physics and engineering. And he went back to become head of the physics department and later head of the university in Tokyo. The girls were there to learn English. And basically, to learn how women learned, it it was very mushy. The families that adopted them saw them as needing to learn the way boys learn. So Stematsu, for one, went to Hill House High School in in New Haven, which was at that point the crowning jewel of public education in, in New England. She and Shige both went to Vassar College, which was the first College, founded specifically as an institute of higher education for women, had only been open for about a dozen years. Shige studied music there, and Stematsu studied English literature and history. Ume, being younger, graduated from high school in Washington and also, you know, studied literature and history. These were girls who were always winning prizes for recitations. They were not learning science. They were learning how to be elegant, dignified wives and mothers. That, that phrase, yosai kenbo, that, that good wife, wise mother thing. That's where they were being pointed.
0: And then of course, Suda goes on to graduate from Bryn Mawr College, I believe.
1: Right, so this was much later. They, they returned to Tokyo and uh, after a little while, Ume began to regret that she had been so young while they were in America because she had been too young to go to college. And so she got permission to go back and spend three years at Bryn Mawr as a special student studying biology, interestingly enough. I think she, at that point, realized this is, I'm I'm leaping over a lot of the story here, but by that point, Ume Tsura knew that she was going to remain unmarried and be an educator. That was going to be her calling. And when she got to Bryn Mawr, I think she specifically chose a science and not, you know, more good wife, wise mother stuff and really took as her mentor and her model, the president of Bryn Mawr, this woman named M. Carrie Thomas, who was definitively an unmarried educator and really showed Ume that it was possible to be that since there was no model for that in Japan.
0: And then she kind of takes up that model and, and becomes a model herself, right? When she comes back, I mean, she's well-known for founding Tsuda College, one of the first women's universities in Japan.
1: Right, so she comes back and founds Tsuda College very much on the model of Bryn Mawr. She founds it as a school, not a finishing school, not you know, not like the peeress's school in Tokyo, which was basically to add a little Western polish to the children of the wealthy, but more as an institute of higher education for women who wanted to teach English. And be educators themselves. And it grew from a tiny rented house into what it is today, which is, I think there are 4,000 undergraduates still.
0: So it sounds like they, I mean, they all became very successful students. And I imagine when they first arrived, they were somewhat... And celebrities and, and I could imagine almost was in the papers following them along but what were you able to find out about you know their daily life outside of school did you find any writings say diaries or anything from them to, to get a little bit more about how they were reacting to these things
1: yeah I mean that's that was part of the fun was finding the sources that were in their voices first you know when the Iwakura mission reaches San Francisco in, in 1872 the newspapers go nuts over this Japanese delegation, because it's this wonderful moment, you know, it's almost the American centennial, and America, which has always been the upstart nation, is suddenly able to imagine themselves pivoting and being mentor nation. Here's this Japanese delegation coming to America and saying, please teach us how to be successful like you. And it's this wonderful moment of sort of national consciousness shifting. And so the the newspaper coverage is just adoring. Plus, they the Americans tend to imagine that these Japanese visitors are all royalty, so that the five girls are princesses. <laughs> and, you know, there's that enduring American fascination with royalty that we still suffer from, I think. So there was a lot of good newspaper coverage. Then once they were here, they did, there are, you know, there's some letters archived, you know, at Vassar and at Yale and because of New Haven and also still at Suda College. Where they were writing back to their families in Japan a little bit and then writing to each other because between New Haven and Georgetown they kept in touch. And then once they went back to Tokyo, the greatest gift to me as a historian and biographer was the closeness between Ume Tsuda and her foster mother, Mrs. Landman, because from basically the day she left to go back to Tokyo, Ume started writing to Mrs. Landman and wrote to her. All the time, for decades until Mrs. Landman died in her 90s, and so those letters became an incredible, rich resource for me as a storyteller.
0: And we were talking before about Suda Umeko and how, when she comes back to Japan, she found Suda College, which goes on to be one of the first women's universities in Japan. And that's just one of the more well-known examples. Can you give us some other examples of the impact that these women had after returning to Japan from the United States?
1: It's funny. I, I'm always intrigued by how the three of them were really, they were very important to each other, right? They were, they were other to just about everyone in the world except each other. No one else had had this experience of leaving Japan, spending 10 years in America, coming back. And what they very much shared was this sense of mission, like we have a responsibility to the Japanese government to help our mother country. But the way they went about it was entirely different, distinct in each of the three cases. Shige, the middle girl, Had actually met and fallen in love with another Japanese male student while they were in New Haven. He was being fostered by people across the street. So she had married a man of her own choice, also unusual for a Japanese woman of her moment. And when she returned to Japan, having studied Western music, had a skill that the Japanese government wanted because they wanted their nobles, their leaders, and their aristocrats to be able to intersect with. Western dignitaries. And so going to a ball and knowing Western music and how to dance was important. So Shige fell into that role of teaching Western music in Tokyo. Also easier having been in in, in America for ten years, Shige and Stematsu had held on to their language skills since they had always been able to talk to each other in Japanese. But they had both returned without literacy in Japanese anymore. And so music is something you can teach without knowing how to read and write in Japanese. So that was that was Shige's contribution, and she taught music for her whole career and while raising a huge number of children with her with her husband who became an admiral. So that was one way of being influential. Dematsu who had been an incredible success at Vassar and a class speaker at graduation and a real dazzling student came back and realized that there was no way she was going to be able to found a school right off the bat given that she was now illiterate in Japanese. And that was deeply frustrating. So her choice, which was very much a surprise to her. She had assumed that she would remain single and found a school. Instead, she married Iwao Oyama, who was the Minister of War, very influential, much older man in the Meiji cabinet, and became the elite of the elite in Tokyo, became eventually Princess Oyama, and never taught, but became a very important advisor and patroness of women's education. From above and sort of behind the curtain. So that was a different way of having an impact. And then, of course, Ume came back unable to speak Japanese, let alone read and write it, refused to even consider marrying and ended up furthering her education in America and then founding the college that still
0: bears her name. Now, you mentioned at the beginning that you kind of felt connected to this because of your own story.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's ironic, right? You know, I, I always dreamed of having ancestors who lived in an old 18th century house somewhere with an attic with trunks that had, you know, letters and old dresses. And I could tell some story from my own family. And I, I don't have that kind of family. <laughs> but here was this story that had so many resonances with with things that had happened to me. You know, I had, like Ume, I had landed in Tokyo without language skills, desperate to fit in. And so I knew that kind of frustration of being underestimated. Like, I have something to offer, but I don't have the skills to demonstrate it to you. Like Alice, I knew what it felt like. Sorry, the, the Alice Bacon part of the puzzle is that after the girls spent their 10 years here, when they went back to Japan, Alice came over and taught with them. Her... Memoirs are so wonderful to read because she's a very wry figure who is really unembarrassed about being the only gaijin around and, you know, a head taller and much stouter than anyone that she encountered. Plus, she brought her dog over and he caused all kinds of consternation. (laughs) Um, So I knew how it felt to be sort of awkward and, and making all kinds of gaffes when I first encountered this new culture, but at the same time being entranced by it and wanting to understand it. And then there was the third piece of it was my husband, who had been born in Japan but had come here with his family when he was very small for what was supposed to be two years of a you know a a businessman posting to Seattle. And it stretched. And so he came here when he was three and when he was 16, his father's company finally called them back to Japan and it was too late for my husband to re-assimilate back into Japanese society. So he stayed here and became the American child of a Japanese family. What happens when a cultural gulf opens within a single family had happened in his family, the same way it happened in families of these girls when they came back to Japan. So I, you know, that, that's fascinating to me, that kind of amphibiousness of being of two different cultures at once. It was very much part of our family story.
0: Meji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.